Hey, my name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I, I gotta tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know that you're in a good place, and I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one? Radio is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hello out there, this is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio? And I'm now passing the baton off to my man, Veda. A lot of that time talking about the sins of the whole world and who's covered, who's included. But remember, that's because the scripture says that we read said that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So that was completely relevant. Um, so the next one, the next one is the Gospel of John, chapter six, verse forty-four. Slick, you get the first, uh, you get the first stab at this one as well. And this is Jesus's words right here, saying, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day." Go for it. Yeah, there's really not a whole bunch to go into this because uh, John six forty-four, the Father has to draw you. You can't come on your own. You have to be drawn from the Father. That's, that's it. If everybody has the ability on their own, then why did Jesus say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him? Now, some might get into prevenient grace and some other issues. We'll see if that comes up and we can deal with that. But uh, he says, I will raise him up on the last day. So the ones who are drawn uh, by him are the ones who raise up on the last day. And I always reference this with that verse. He was saying, for this reason, I said to you, verse 65, no one can come to me unless, the same phraseology, this has been granted to him from the Father. If it's just simply up to our free will choices and the sinner's just free will choices, then these verses shouldn't be there. Because it says you can't come unless you're drawn. You can't come unless it's been granted by God the Father. You have to be granted by the Father. When does the Father grant this? That's an interesting question. We could talk about that. But it's only applying to a certain group of people, only the sheep. Because Jesus says he didn't lay his life down for the, for the goats, just the sheep. In John 10, <clears throat> John's an incredibly very good book uh, for, the, for the doctrines of, of Reformed theology and Calvinism. But nevertheless, uh, John 6, 44. If it's true, because Calvinism teaches total depravity, that a person is touched by sin in all areas of what he is, heart, soul, mind, body, and that because of it, he cannot come to Christ on his own, period. He cannot. And I can quote you a lot of references for that. This is why it says, only if the Father draws him. And some renditions have it drag. So draw and drag. The word is kind of interchangeable there, but draw is fine. And then Jesus further clarifies, you can't come to me unless it's been granted to you from the Father. God is not granted based upon your repentance, your baptism, or anything that he would foresee in you. That would be partiality, which God does not show, Romans 2.11, James 2, 2 through 4. That has to be based on what's in God, not what's with us. Otherwise, that's partiality and favoritism, and that's a problem. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I agree with a lot of what um, Matt Slick said. Uh, however, you can't have it both ways because you made it clear that Jesus came to Israel, <laughs> right? His ministry, earthly ministry, and I agree with you, amen, is what's directly, he came to uh, the sheep, lost sheep of the house of Israel. And John says it this way, he came unto his own 
and his own received him not. So that's the culture in the context. But then all of a sudden, all these references to the sheep and all of this becomes the elect and no longer about Israel. I don't think you can have it both ways. And so understanding the culture that I think Matt so wonderfully laid out of Jesus's audience being Israel, now let's go back and look at the text. So in verse 44, uh, in verse, I'm going to go back a little bit here to verse 40, because what happens is Jesus says the same thing in different ways, uh, several times through the text. He'll, he'll repeat it. He'll say it a different way. He'll say it this way. But what happens is my Calvinist brothers, they love verse 44, and they put that one up as the golden verse and then read all the other ones through it. Well, what about verse 40, where it says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And so this is before we get to verse 44. In verse 40, Christ had already established that this does not happen unless a person believes. But what happens is, we'll, we'll jump over verse 40, we'll get to verse 44, and verse 44 says, no man can come unless the Father draws me. Then we'll read that back into verse 40. So, okay, so when he, when he draws you, then you believe. That's not what the verse is saying. Culturally, let me give the context real quickly. Culturally, again, this was to Israel. Verse 40 says, whoever sees the sun. I think that's talking literally, right? Because this, these aren't pagan uh, Gentiles that Jesus is talking to here in St. John chapter 6. These are covenantal Israelites who were born knowing the Torah, knowing the prophets. And so because they didn't accept Christ, it was evident that God wasn't drawing them because they weren't believers before he came. And I'll clarify that more on my next turn. We ought to just have a back and forth. Um, and that's free, by the way. Only reason I'm giving y'all signals okay. is just so people aren't too long-winded, but please feel free to yeah. interact. But uh, I know the pericope uh, very well of John 6, 37 through 40. Yes, and it's, it's very powerful in, in uh, support of Reformed theology. Um, and it's not just to the, to the, uh, the disciples. It's not just to the Jews. Uh, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And in verse 40, you know, everyone who believes, that's not just the Jews. He says in verse 37, this is critical. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. <clears throat> For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that all he's given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. Notice, the will of the Father, lose nothing, raise it up. Will of the Father, lose nothing, raise it up. Verse 40, the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes will have eternal life, will raise them up. 39 and 40 are parallel. And you believe you can't lose your salvation because Jesus says the will of the Father is that Jesus lose none. I don't know if your position is if you, can, if you teach you to lose your salvation, but Jesus taught you can't. And this is in support of Calvinism. You see, <clears throat> if Jesus paid for our sins, he's not going to lose anybody. Their sin that's been canceled. You can't have your sins reapplied to you. It's canceled at the cross. It necessitates eternal security. And the will of the Father is that Jesus lose none. It does not say the will of the Father is that you believe, and hopefully you'll stay in the faith, and you, he won't be lost. It doesn't say that. It's between the Father and the Son. Jesus always does the will of the Father, John 8, 29 always does. The will of the Father is that Jesus lose none, but raise up the ones given to him by the Father. And also, those who behold him will be raised up. They will not be lost. This is in support of Reformed theology. I love 37 through 40, and then Jesus goes on to say in verse 44, you can't come to me 
unless the Father sent me, draws you. And I'll raise him up on the last day. The ones who are believed, the ones who can't be lost, are also the ones drawn. And in verse 65, <clears throat> he says, for this reason I say to you, you can't come to me unless it's been granted you from the Father. But John 6, we know that anybody who's drawn and comes to Christ is because it was granted to them by the Father. We also know that they're the ones who will believe and they have eternal life that can't be lost because the will of the Father is that Jesus lose none. I love these Calvinistic verses. <laughs> Well, I, that was that was wonderful, and I love how you went down to verse sixty-four. Now we're going to read. I'm going to read this. Six. Well, well, I think sixty-four is important, right? Because this is going to. This is going. Jesus. We shouldn't even have to go back and forth after I read this verse, and I say that kind of in jest, but because Jesus tells us why he says what he says, right? Watch this, verse sixty-four. But there are some of you who do not believe. Notice he brings it right back to faith. There are some of you who do not believe. Now, Calvin is not going to like this verse here because it says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. Again, some of you do not believe. And I'm taking my time for a reason. I spend my whole whatever on this two minutes. For Jesus knew from the beginning. He knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. So why did Jesus say, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to me by my father. Because the therefore is in reference to what he said before the therefore. Because he knew from the beginning those who did not believe. That's why verse 40 is important, because before he gets to 44, he already established this is the will of the father that those who see the sun, right? Those who see the sun and believe in him may have everlasting life. And again, this is why I'm telling you no one can come unless the father draws because he already knew, not decreed, not predestined, not determined, not any of those Calvinistic uh, deterministic words. He knew from the beginning those who did not believe. Of course he knew who wouldn't believe. He's omniscient. He's God in flesh, hypostatic union. That's who Jesus is. And, you know, uh, you didn't go to really, to really examine the pericope of John 6, 37 through 40, which teaches eternal security. I don't know what your position is on that. But, um, yeah, he knew who the false converts were, the unbelievers. And then in light of that, you guys are unbelievers. You guys are this. You're false because he knew from the beginning who they were. Then he says, and he goes, look at this. He goes, for this reason, I say to you, because he knows what reason, that he knew who was false. He says, you can't come to me unless it's been granted to you from the Father. People can't come to him and believe in him unless it's been granted to him from the Father. That's what he's saying. He knows that they're, they're unbelievers from the beginning. He knows Judas. He knew from the beginning Judas was uh, you know, going to betray him. He knew that. He still chose him in his sovereignty and still chose him. But what he's saying is, 
You can't come to me unless the Father's granted it to you. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that the Father grants that you come to him if you're a believer? That's not what it says. Because it does say in John 6, 37, this whole context, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The ones who come to him are the ones given to him by the Father. That's why they will come to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. It's not all who uh, come to me, the Father will give to me. That's not the biblical position. The, what we teach is all that the Father gave to the Son, that's the elect, will come to me. And he's reiterating, no one can come to me that's been granted from the Father, John 6, 40, 65. He says, you can't come to him unless, it's, unless you've been drawn by the Father, John 6, 44. He also says that in verse 40, you cannot lose your salvation, you have eternal life. He says, you can't fail to do the will of the Father, etc. This it shows eternal security which is concomitant with the issue of him canceling the sin debt for his people, canceling it out, wiping them out. He represented them. They're given by the Father to the Son. Jesus represented them. They are the ones who are redeemed. They're the ones drawn. They're the ones granted faith, which he says here, can be has been granted by the Father. And Philippians 1.29, granted to believe and granted repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25. God grants all these things to the people he chooses to do this with. This is God's sovereignty. It's not based upon, this is what, what, you're not a cultist. The cults teach that what happens is God makes his choice based upon what he sees in people, the goodness in them, what they will do and how they're going to believe, and God reacts knowing what they're going to be, and he chooses them based upon this. That's, that's heresy. That is, that's heresy. It's a false teaching. All the cults teach that. Islam works with that. Roman Catholicism teaches that. Roman Catholicism is false. What we see in Scripture is that God the Father gives to the Son. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me. That's what he says. And he says, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you. You cannot come to me unless it's been granted by the Father. And yes, John 6, 64, I love that verse because it's one of the references I show in favor of eternal security, that those people were never believers to begin with. That's why they were never saved to begin with. They never had their sins removed because they weren't believers to begin with. Go ahead, Mike. <clears throat> you on mute. Oh, I hear you. Yeah, there you go. I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus explained exactly why he said it. Therefore, I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So, okay, why again? Because he knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. Of course you're gonna. Of course he knew, right? But that's not the point. The point is, this is why he says no one can come to me except to be granted from the Father. Not because they're predetermined, not because they've been decreed, not because they are my elect, which the scripture doesn't say, uh, but because he knew. So those, he explains it. I knew from the beginning who they were who won't believe. Going back to verse 40, this is the will of the Father, that those who see the Son and believe, and believe, you cannot get around belief. This election, uh, in terms of the way my Calvinist brothers look at it, is, is taking an individual view of the text and not uh, seeing the text in its context. So again, let's go back to John again. John is talking to a people. He's not on the streets witnessing to pagans. He's talking to Jews who were in covenant and should have known him. This is why if you go back some to chapter five, he says, had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. Now, how could they have believed him if they weren't the elect? 
No, it's had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. Then he says in chapter number five, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Now, if they were non-elect, it, it wouldn't matter what they did. They would not have had life. When, at the beginning, when God made his selection, life was over for anybody he didn't choose. But Jesus says, you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. You're not willing. You could have life. Jesus uses the word life. I'm not inserting that into the text. He says, you, you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. But you're not willing. Then he goes on to say, everyone who sees the son and believes. And this is why he said, no one can come except the father draws. Because he knew from the beginning, those who don't believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Not whoever were elect before the foundation of the world, but whoever believes in him should not perish. Not because the debt was canceled should not perish, but whoever believes in him should not perish. Matt, you want to respond to that and close this out on John six forty four? Sure. Um, uh, yeah, you, you support Calvinism so much you don't even realize it. Um, <laughs> you refuse to come to me that we're not willing. Of course, they're not willing because total depravity. They're unbelievers. They're slaves of sin. Romans six fourteen through twenty. They can't seek for God. They don't do anything good. Romans three ten eleven and twelve. That's exactly what we teach is Calvinism, and that's why they weren't willing to come to him. They didn't want to come to him. They weren't willing to. That's why God has to grant that they come. That's why he's got to draw, draw them. That's why he has to grant them repentance and grant that they believe and work faith in them. That's why he's got to cause them to be born again, 1 Peter 1, 3, and they're born again, John 1, 12, 13 says, not of their own wills. This is all consistent. You're starting to help me here. You're actually helping me out, and I love that. Um, and I look, we could, we could have to have a, a fair discussion sometime, not limited time. Go, wait, that's not exactly right. Because um, uh, there are several things that in the reform camp you don't understand yet. And no disrespect meant, because no one understands everything perfectly. I've been defending it a long time. But uh, there's some errors there, like in decree and some other things. Anyway, to say we can't get around belief. I, I never try to get around belief. Of course you've got to believe. I always say you've got to believe. You need to believe. We're justified by faith. You got to believe. I can quote you the verses for it. Um, we have to believe. And you say, Joe, Jew, John is going to be John is talking to the Jews in covenant, not just of the Jews, because he says everyone who would believe John six forty, everyone. It's not just the Jews. That's universal. All who would believe. God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever. And actually, in the Greek, it doesn't say whoever. That's another topic. But you see, then he says, you're not willing to come to me. Why? because you're a slave of sin, a hater of God, you can't see these things, you're not able to receive them, etc. You gotta be drawn, you gotta be granted it, you gotta be caused to be born again, you gotta have all this stuff, it's exactly what we teach. You're actually supporting my position. I mean, I wanna give you like a big hug for two reasons, one, I like your hat, and you know, you deserve a hug, you know, and, uh, but you're helping me out. You're helping me out. And uh, I'm just gonna leave it at that, because I wanna leave it on a friendly note here on this last part, so go, you know, go ahead. All right, so we're down to our last two. We're down to our last two, and this is not in the Gospel of Luke, but this is in what many scholars call the Gospel of Luke Part 2, the sequel, the Book of Acts, all right? Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Holloway, I'm going to ask you to get the first word here, and this reads as such. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Holloway, take it away. All right. Again, another explicit text. <laughs> I'm glad you think I'm helping you out, too. I'm glad you think I'm helping you out because <laughs> I think I'm helping a lot of people out, too. <laughs> but Acts chapter 17 is clear. Again, you got to import, as with as did with John, you got to import. There was nothing in John about total depravity, but got to import those things into the text right and then conclude based on those importations but Acts chapter number 17 is clear right and if i go back a little bit verse 24 says god who made the world and everything in it since he is lord of heaven and of earth does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life breath and all things so no one would disagree that he gives all life to all people and all things and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling watch verse 27 so that they should seek the lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far watch this from each one of us each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring who all people verse 29 therefore since we are the offspring of god we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone something shaped by art and man's devising Right. Then he goes on to say, truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Notice what he does here. He established the context earlier. He he predetermined their appointed times and places for what purpose that they might seek the Lord. Calvin's going to say no man can seek the Lord. No scripture says that. Uh, but. The Calvinists will say no man sees, no man can seek the Lord, but the scripture is clear. All men, he commands all men to repent. My turn? Yes, sir. Yes, the Bible does say that, uh, and what you said in Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12, just check it out. No one seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. It does say that. Um, and Acts 17 is really important because what Paul is doing is quoting the pagan philosopher. He's dealing with Epimenides, uh, who was 600 years earlier, who built the temple to the unknown God. The Athenians, 600 years ago, had had a plague, and they called him out of the island of Crete to come in and uh, skip details. They ended up uh, doing sacrifice of sheep and made a, an altar the, uh, to the unknown God. So what Paul is doing in the context of this is speaking to the Athenians and using what's called general revelation, and even the witness that he's provided for himself out of uh, Acts 14 talks about this. He's provided witness to all nations. And that's a really interesting topic to talk about how God's gospel, one way or another, is in all cultures and all places and all time. And he's simply using this principle. And he even quotes a pagan poet. He quotes, he quotes Epimenides, he quotes Menander, he quotes Erastus, and he quotes these pagans. He's trying to get the Athenians to... Uh, to uh, understand what's going on. This is what he's doing. Uh, people would, would uh, seek him. That's the idea. They're seeking God, but which God? They're not seeking the true living God, but Paul's coming there informing them 
the true God with special revelation, not the general revelation. And then he says in Acts 13, 4, uh, 1730, he says something very significant. He commands everyone everywhere to repent. Why would he do that? If total depravity is true, they can't repent. Because repentance is not humanistic. We shouldn't have a humanistic philosophy. God is the standard of righteousness. He says in 1 Peter 1.16, be holy for I am holy. We can't be holy. He commands it because he's the standard of righteousness. He commands everyone ought to be holy. That means you have to repent. He commands it because it's what ought to be done. But humanism says man is a standard. If they can't repent, then why would God ask it? That's a humanistic philosophical position. We have to understand that God has made a command. Everyone everywhere has to repent. Paul simply is telling the truth. Then he's going to talk to them about the repentance of turning from their sin and their false gods and coming to faith in true living God. But we know from elsewhere that God grants them repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25. He grants that they believe, Philippians 1.29. This is all nicely woven together, the whole of Scripture. And uh, Acts 17.30 is a verse I love. Anyway, we're out of time on that one. No, Romans says no one seeks the Lord. It doesn't say no one can seek the Lord. So you probably want to uh, go back and check that out. And that was right. actually Paul quoting Romans. So I didn't say no one sought him. I said, I said the scripture doesn't say no one can. That's the word that Calvinists insert. It's not in the text. Now, going back here to Acts 17, and I agree with you. I certainly understand the context. I certainly understand that they were in this pagan culture speaking to these uh, people. And Paul quotes these pagan uh, poets and things like that. I understand all of that. But here's what the text says. The text says that he commands every man to repent. Now, you made a statement. You said that God commands us to be holy, but we can't. Where verse is that? Show me the verse that says we can't be holy. In context, see, what happens is we bring a Western view into an Eastern text. In context, that holiness means to be separate from other nations, to be separate, to be distinct. And yes, we're commanded to be holy. If you're not holy, we're going to hell, right? But we're only holy through his righteousness, but holiness is a requirement. Yes, we can be holy. God isn't commanding us to do things we cannot do. Yes, we can be holy because, again, holy in context doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes you're without sin, but be separate, be distinct from the world, which is why he placed sacrificial offerings in the law so they can continue to be holy even though they sinned and erred, they yet could fulfill the promises or the commandments that he had given them, right? And so, so when he says no one can, uh, I'm sorry, when he says be uh, repent. He commands all men to repent. He meant it. He not not because they can't. That's not humanistic. Calvinist Calvinism, in my view, is a humanistic construct. And you're inserting all of these things that the text doesn't say. The text does not say no one can repent. <laughs> it doesn't say it. It says repent or die. That's what it says. It says it. So God's going to tell me to repent, knowing I can't repent. Then on judgment day saying you should have repented. Come on. That's not the God we serve. I believe we serve a God who says repent. Then he, he aids us. Now, I'm not Arminian. I don't believe that man has this innate ability. I'm certainly not Pelagian, but I believe God is drawing. God is helping. God is ministering. He's revealing himself through creation as well as through special revelation. But men, at the day they hear his voice, they harden their hearts against him. God commands all men to repent because they can, not because they can't. If you read the rest of Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12, mm -hmm. none who does good. Is repentance good? Yes. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Paul is condemning all people. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. This is what Paul is saying. 
We have to understand this along with the rest of the scriptures. And this, you know, it's worth a discussion. Now, we're talking about John, or excuse me, Acts 17.30. He commands everyone to repent because that's what's right. We cannot be holy. Holiness is a quality of God's nature. Holiness is a quality of his attribute. He says, be holy for I am holy. And you said it, which I'm glad you did, that the only way we're holy is through his righteousness. That's the correct answer, only through his righteousness. So you're saying we can't be holy. And I, of course, I agree, unless the righteousness of Christ is imputed and we're seen as holy. But that's how it is. It's by imputation. It's by, by being in Christ, federal headship, that we're seen as that. Nobody can do this. He says, be holy for I'm holy. That means to the believer and the unbeliever as well, that statement applies. But only the believer can achieve anything resembling that because they're in Christ from the foundation of the world. And in Christ, they died to sin. And in Christ, they rose from the dead and cru crucified with him. And in Christ, he canceled their sin debt. Then we can be seen through Christ by the Father as being holy. The unbelievers can't be holy. There's no way they can be holy. The Christ, Christian can only be holy by faith in Christ. When he says, be holy for I am holy, he's commanding it to all people everywhere. That's what has to happen. Because all people are supposed to meet his standard, not the humanist standard. So therefore, that verse applies to all people. He's saying to people something that is required. You've got to understand, a lot of Christians miss this. God is a standard of righteousness. God says don't sin because he can't sin. Be holy because he's holy. Repent. Well, he can't repent because there's nothing he to turn from because it's his nature and his essence. But we're, we have to meet his standard, be raised to his standard, which is why God came down to earth, died for us, and raised us up into the heavenlies. And that's by federal headship as well. You did give the fist, right? I did. That was a power thing, or is that? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I couldn't resist. I got to say it. You know, I'm thinking this, you know. You know, right. I actually thought I actually thought one of y'all was going to say something like I'm a choir leader, you know, because that's what the choir, you know, <laughs> you know what the choir leader. Why? I'm old, <laughs> guys. I've seen that symbol uh, before. And uh, yeah. So any rate. All right. Um, <laughs> guys, though. But I think I, I, I think you refuted your own argument. You said God is the standard. He, he says uh, tells us to be holy because he is holy. He tells us to be uh, uh, uh separate and the things other words you use but then you say it, he tells us to repent oh but he can't repent so how's he the standard for that no he he tells us to repent because that's what he requires repentance again god isn't saying repent i know you can't i'm going to judge you because you didn't not what scripture is saying men repent because god is commanding all men to repent now just to go back to the verse that we were talking about again you you insert it again back in romans you said no one does good or, or right? it doesn't say no one can again that's the insertion again and contextually he's quoting right he's talking to israel because notice what he says uh, in romans chapter number two he says here for when the gentiles uh, let me see here. Um, I'm sorry here. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, watch this, this, this first Calvinists don't like, do by nature the things contained in the law. These who have not the law are, are a law to themselves. So again, that there's nothing in the text. There's nothing in the text that is talking about uh, uh, man not being able to fulfill God's requirements. Now, again, I'm not saying that man does it himself. God is there. 
whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. So he's there to assist us. Calvinists read these verses that mean to mean, well, only, so he's only going to do it to the elect. God grants repentance, Calvinists add. So he's only going to do it to the elect. God grants faith, oh, Calvinists add. So he's only going to do it to the elect. That's too much addition. When, when the text is absolutely clear that the Gentiles have been granted faith and repentance as well as the Jews. And that's what Paul is talking about. So this, you know, us hitting on Romans is going to help us when we get back up to chapter uh, number nine. So when God call, commands every man, every man to repent, it is not because they cannot. That would be an unjust God. <clears throat> Um, you, uh, you quoted Romans 2, and I know it quite well. I've taught the book of Romans many times over the years. You look at verse 14, that the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law are justified. Obviously, Paul's not teaching justification by works, because that would be heresy. What's he doing? He's talking about the Jews, or the, the Jews who are mocking the unbelievers. You go to verse 17, you go to verse 21, and you, verse 2-1, and you see, and I know the context. And what he's talking about there has to do with the issue of the Jews mocking the Gentiles, because in, Gen in Romans 1, the Gentiles are guilty. He says, and Romans 2, 1, you, you do the same thing. And he says, the Gentiles have that law. I talk about the general revelation and they do these things. They're going to be just, dear Jew, who thinks you're justified by the law. Uh, I love talk, talking about this and teaching this because uh, <clears throat> Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, use these verses uh, for that. And uh, I did read Romans 10, 9, uh, excuse me, uh, Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12. I just read them to you and uh, where it says, no one seeks for God. That's the present tense in the Greek. If you had Greek, you can start MDiv, you'll know that the Greek tense in the present tense has a continuation slightly participial to it. It's not a full participle, but it's a little bit more participial than the English uh, uh, present tense. So it means those who are like seeking, it, like, it's not exactly, but that's the idea. And so no one's, no one's doing this. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They've turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. That's what he says. I believe it. There's none who does good. No one, no one seeks for God. I'm just quoting it. That's what it says. And uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the unbeliever cannot receive the things of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot receive them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that. Now there's your cannot verse. Now, if you're going to say that, yes, they can, then you're contradicting Scripture, but they cannot, which is why God has to grant that they believe, grant them repentance, grant that they faith, cause them to be born again, appoint them to eternal life. As many as have been appointed to, to eternal life believed, Acts 13, 48. And I can go into all these verses, you know, because we agreed not to quote a whole bunch. I've not done that. But trust me, there's a lot. And I've got hundreds memorized about all this kind of stuff. So, um, quoting Romans uh, 10, 9, and 10. I love that verse. Oh, and don't, don't, you shouldn't really say verses Calvinists don't like. Uh, I love all these verses you're saying, okay? Whoever called upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We agree with that. We believe whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. We agree. Where does it say in the text that of their own sinful, enslaved free will, they can do that? It doesn't say that. Don't read into the text. It just says whoever calls. How are they enabled to call? How are they able to call? Because God enables them to. And that's a whole other topic. Okay. In response, um, just to read that verse again, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. So I just wanted to point it out that this isn't total depravity. This isn't what they were born with. They have become, they have turned aside. So this isn't 
So there's a total depravity where they're born in this condition. This is something that they acted out in their life. So, so I think that if we understand the full context, this isn't total depravity. All right. So to get back to what was stated now back in Acts, God commanding all men to repent again. No one is saying that man is doing everything on his own. God, the word is nighty, even in thy heart and in thy mouth, that if you confess the Lord Jesus, right? It, so God is present, a very present help when we call upon him. So I'm not in any way saying that man without God, without his glory, without God showing, without the beauty of creation, without him working on his conscience, without the moving of the spirit, that man is somehow saying, I want God. No, but what I am saying is God is leading. He is ministering. He is drawing. He is dealing. And it's not, again, Calvinists conclude every time it must be it must be just the elect. So it has to be just the elect. And none of those scriptures say that. Now, I want to make that part clear. Those are the logical, from a Calvinistic construct, logical conclusions. But from what I believe, the biblical logical conclusion, no, the, the scripture is already clear. If you believe, you will be saved. If you repent, and God is commanding it, not because he knows you can't, but because he knows you can, because he's present to help. And I'll leave it at that. Awesome. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Now, are we still good? So we only got one more. We're going to do Romans 9 next. Yes, Romans 9. Are, are we still are yeah, we I'm, still good on time after that to do uh, like the 20 minutes yeah. or so? The cross I'm good. Are we still good? <clears throat> yes, sir. All right. So, all right. So let's go on to Romans chapter 9, 15 and 16 as the, as the scripture finale. You know, uh, let me not say that because I got theologians who watch. They're going to be like, what? what? You know, they're going to say I mean something I ain't mean. Anyway, <laughs> the last, the last scripture. Wait, I got a timer going off in my ear. I don't know. What, there we go. All right. So we got Romans chapter nine, and we're going to read verses 15 and 16. Holloway, I'm going to let you uh, have the first stab at it. And Romans chapter nine, verses 15 and 16 reads as this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I completely understand that in order for us to properly teach this, you know, we may have to go to Romans 8. 9, 10, 11, 12, however you, you know, however we do it. But Holloway, you got your first stab at it. I'll read it one more time for the listeners. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Holloway, take it up, take the floor. Okay, I love Romans 9. Romans 9, 10, and 11, they're all beautiful passages, and I think these passages are incorrectly uh, interpreted by my Calvinist brothers. Notice what Paul, what Paul is doing here. He is giving uh, a question that could be raised by one who is trying to say that God isn't fair, but what is it they're saying God isn't fair to? Well, let's go back here, um, and, and I, just real quick, verse number one and two, Paul makes it clear what the context is. Basically, what about Israel? Paul says, I have continual sorrow in my heart for my brethren after the flesh who are Israelites, according to the flesh, who were given the promises and the covenants and, you know, and through whom Christ came, who is blessed 
forever. So I just paraphrase that, paraphrase that just to show that the context was Paul speaking to his brethren, the nation as a people. And, and as we get to the text, and I'm sure I'll go back maybe in our exchange, but as we get to the text, what is he asking a question about? In verse number 12, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. This is Rebecca who had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And before the children were born, it was said to her that there are two nations in your womb. Again, talking about two nations. Then it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. But what was this election to? It wasn't Jacob's going to heaven and Esau's going to hell. No, but the older shall serve the younger. And to prove that it wasn't specifically about individuals, in their lives, Esau never served Jacob. In their heritage, the Edomites served the Israelites. Again, this was the nations who were in view. If we read these contextually, verse 14, here he comes. What shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? So we've already got the context, how God elected Israel over Esau, and Esau would represent the other nations. He chose them to bring about the Christ. This had nothing to do with who was going to hell and who wasn't. We need to spend a lot of time in Romans 9. Um, go to Romans 4, I mean, uh, 9, 4, that's good, but don't forget uh, verses 6 and 7. For they are not Israel who are descended from Israel, uh, not all descendants of Abraham. Um, and so he's shifting not just to the issue of Israel, but yeah, we know, and Calvinists are certainly quite aware of the context of the nations. But what you'll find here is if it's just talking about nations, then why the objection? Uh, what should we say then? There's no injustice with God, is it may never be? Well, you object if God elects individuals, as you've objected. And most people who aren't Calvinists will object to the idea that God has the right to elect one person to do he wants, what he wants, and another one for destruction, as Romans 9, 22 and 23 says. You will understand the text when you read it in such a way that you object as, as what's being said. And he says, uh, the older will serve the younger, but you got to keep going. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That means God loved one and hated another, not because of what they would do. That's what it says. Because verse 11, not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works. Not because of any works that they would do. This is all before the prophecy. It has nothing to do with their works. He loved one and hated another. That's what Romans 13 says. Then the objection, well, how is that fair? And then he says, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. That's what he says in verse 15. And the whom in the Greek is singular, not plural, as in a group. And it's not individuals. Excuse me, it's not a, a group of people like a nation, because then there's no objection. Who else object? God could do what he wants with one nation. But the individuals in the nation, they make their own decisions. And then he goes on, he says, so it does not depend <clears throat> upon the man who wills or the man who runs. Notice, the man, not the nation, but the man, the individual who runs or the man who, who uh, wills, but on God who has mercy. And then he goes into an individual, Pharaoh. I raised you up for this purpose. I, we're condensing this. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. The word whom in the Greek is singular. And then he goes on to the issue of vessels. I wish we had more time to go into it slowly. Vessel, I did research on it, only means individuals, not nations. And he says that he makes one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use. He does this, and he says that he does this. This can only make sense in light of individuals being elected, individuals in this. When I first read this, I did not like it. But that's what it says. 
God is not showing favoritism by seeing what they would do in goodness. And it's not just merely about the nations. It's about individuals. Otherwise, the objections don't stand. I think they absolutely stand. The objection was because Israel was being hardened, right? That was the objection. God was hardening Israel, and the rest of the context is going to bear this out. Now, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, that Greek word, missio. Now, it, it, it's the same word that Jesus used of his disciples when he said, except you hate your mother, father, sister, brother. The context has reference to the same hatred that Jacob had for Leah, because when the Bible says that he saw that Leah was hated and had grace and mercy upon her and blessed her. So, so again, it, the, the, the context is that one is being chosen above the other. Choose Christ above all others, mother, father, sister, brother, and even thine own self. So as we get back into the text, the objection is from Israel. It's still about nations. Paul is using a athletic reference, the him that runs. That's his common use. So him that runs, he's not talking about one physically running for their salvation. He's using a sports illustration as he does in Corinthians when he says, he that fighteth not is one that beateth the air. Paul does this. This is his custom. So Paul is not speaking to one guy doing something in another not. I'm going to show you what the text is going to be absolutely clear because he's talking about nations and you, and you brought it up. It's two vessels. Two vessels. One is Israel. One is the other nations, Gentile. So one for honor, one for dishonor. Two vessels. There were two lumps. Who were the lumps? Israel and the other the Gentiles, the other nations. And, and Paul makes that clear. And I'm going to jump just a little bit to verse 30 because I want to get to his summary. And he's going to do it even more in the next chapters. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness. So God now is choosing Gentiles as vessels of mercy, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. You know, now they have now, when Gentiles were initially the vessels of wrath, the, the script has been flipped. The mercy now is being shown to Gentiles and Israel is being hardened. Why? Verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith but as it were the works of the law. The context are these nations. He's not talking about individuals at all. Well, um, yeah, he is uh, talking about individuals. Uh, Paul says in verse 15, the man not, it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs. That's not a nation. That's our individuals. And when you said he hardened a nation, that doesn't really have any meaning to it. He hardened, like I live in Idaho. He hardened Idaho. Well, Idaho's a state. He didn't harden the state and the, the boundaries. Individuals are the ones who are hardened. So when you say he hardened Israel, it's not really what's going on. It can't be what's going on. Individuals are the ones who are hardened. But what he says, <clears throat> he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's what he says to Moses. So then, it, and then Paul says, it does not depend upon the man who want, runs or the man who wills, excuse me, but on God who has mercy. So he's talking about individuals, the man. It doesn't say the nation, it says the man. And then he goes into, the scripture says to Pharaoh, this very person, purpose, I raised you up. Pharaoh was a, an individual. He raised him up to show his power in him, uh, that his name might be proclaimed. So then, he, then Paul says, he has mercy on whom he desires, he hardens whom he desires. 
This is the sovereignty of God. I hope you would agree that God hardens whom he desires and, and uh, softens who he desires. If you mean it's just nations, they're people in the nations. People are the ones who are hardened. You have to be saying then, well, then it's the people that are hardened and the people who are softened. You can't have a nation. It has to be individuals in the nation. So it still is dealing with individuals that God is hardening and God is softening and having mercy to. And you'll say, well, then why does it still find fault? Because it only makes sense to ask that question if it's individuals. On the contrary, who are you? Oh, man, individual, who answers back to God. It's the thing, Mulder will not say to the Mulder, why did you make me like this? That's not a nation. Why did you make us like this? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have a right to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, made, uh, make his power known, endured with much patience? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The word vessels is only used in, res in respect to individuals, never groups of people. Do the research, take the word vessel, go look, and you'll find it's in reference to individuals, not nations. You won't find that use that way. And you, you misused it when you did that. Do your homework. You'll find out that's the case. Go ahead. <clears throat> All right. Well, I've done a little homework, and I found out that this is talking about nations. And I'm going to show you right here in this text, because the text is clear. He rose up Pharaoh so he could deliver Israel and make his name great amongst his chosen Israel, who was the one he elected, and he used Pharaoh in his wickedness to bring Israel out and killed the firstborn of all Egyptians on that last day before they left Egypt. He was making his name great, using wicked, not wicked because God made him wicked, wicked by his own choice because the context is judgment upon Egypt for their idol worship. Read that all throughout Exodus. God says, I'm going to judge Egypt for her idolatry, for her and for her mistreatment of Israel. Who hardened them to kill the firstborn of the Israelites? Nobody. The man was wicked. Egypt was wicked. God used them to show his glory through them again. That's why he raised up Pharaoh and used them to show his glory to Israel. Now, let's get back here to the text. Again, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Notice, hardening isn't isn't uh, uh, just because they're non-elect. You've got to insert that into the text. Hardening, according to the book of Hebrews, is due to iniquity. God hardens in their unbelief. And that's the context, the judicial hardening of Israel. God said through the prophet Isaiah, I'm going to give them eyes that they do not see and ears that they cannot hear. Why? They served gods with eyes they could not see and ears they could not hear and couldn't deliver them. When you reject God, God will turn you over to what you desire. And they desired dead gods. God said, I'm hardening you in the same way that your hardened gods could not deliver you. And Israel as a nation, yes, individuals make up that nation. So certainly I agree. My point is the context isn't about, you know what? I like Matt. I'm not going to harden him. Mike, uh, not so much. Hardened. Not for no reason at all, or simply because God has some sovereign purpose that nobody know anything about because it's a secret will. No, the text is absolutely clear. That's why Paul clearly said, he clearly said, so therefore the Gentiles got it, Israel didn't. You should check your feet because one of them got a hole in it because you shot yourself in the foot on this one. All right. You, <laughs> check. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to look. <laughs> okay. I'll see no blood. Right <laughs> uh, you said uh, it is about uh, 
He said, uh, <laughs> vessels means nations. No, uh, it doesn't. Uh, you, you don't work there. But that's, that's for later on. You admitted, uh, you said, Pharaoh in his wickedness. The phrase in his wickedness means an individual, not the nation. So you admitted that Pharaoh was the issue of the individual. Thank you for that. You admitted that he was raised up as an individual for that good, because that's what it says after, does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs. And you didn't address that. The man is individual, the man, not the people, not the group, not the nations, but the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy, for then he says, Pharaoh, the man. God raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of proclaiming his power in him. The individual Pharaoh who directed his people. So God raised up the individual man Pharaoh in order to destroy, in order to do various things. And yes, I can show you the verses. God does take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Believe it or not, he says that in the Old Testament. That's a whole other thing. <clears throat> people say, no, he doesn't. Well, no, it says both. And so, so he says, then after Pharaoh was raised up, he says he has mercy on whom he desires. The word whom in the Greek is in the singular, not in the plural. And you'll know by, when you take Greek, if you haven't had Greek already, Greek is very powerful. There's, I won't get into it, but it's, but it's in the singular. Not whom as a plural whom, a plural group of people. But he, he says he has mercy on the one. That's what it is. Greek is like this. The one individual, like anthropos means one man, anthropoi means men. <clears throat> the one whom he desires, and he hardens the one whom he desires as well, because the nature of the Greek language is in the singular. And then you'll say, well, why, why do you still find fault? Why? You see, God, if you're going to say that you're the one who does this, you raise up these individuals and you destroy them, well, then why are you finding fault with what they're doing? They're actually just doing your will. And then he says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, the thing singular. Why did you make me singular like this? This absolutely is dealing with individuals. To say that all this is about nations doesn't make any sense. Because to say it's about nations, for one thing, then why are they objecting? And it's, first of all, you don't harden a nation, you harden people. It's individuals in the nations that have to be hardened. So the, it still comes back to this. And the word vessel does not mean nations. It means individual. Just as Paul says, you, know, you must keep your own vessel in honor, talking about your wife, your singular wife. This is how it's used. Vessels, Paul uses this. And I do things called word studies on individual words to see how God uses the words. And I've, I discovered it, it just means individuals. And that's what it means there. Romans 9 is there because God is demonstrating his sovereignty over individuals. He grants that they believe, grants them repentance. They can't come to him unless they've been granted by the Father, been chosen from the beginning for salvation. We're uh, born again, not of our own will. I, I mean, all these references, I can go on and many more. I'm not, not, to, I'm not supposed to just whip these out. You can't answer them all. Don't expect that. I'm just saying <clears throat> that, that this is what's going on. The whole of Scripture teaches this, and Romans 9 is the centerpiece. Romans 9 is the place where the objections are raised to Calvinism. Well, that's not fair if God's going to do this to individuals. That's exactly what's saying it, being said here. And then the object, objection of God in the verse, in the, I'm not going to do one thing, in the slick translation is, shut up and sit down. I'm God, you're not. That's the slip version. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> My Bible would be very short, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, very short. Uh, Holloway, uh, you you get the last word on this. Go ahead. Again, this verse, this this chapter is talking about nations. Paul makes that clear. 
I'm going to show you all through, the, all through it. He's talking about nations. Now, he is using uh, examples, one who runs uh, vessels, and he's using these are analogies, right? Because, you know, we're not literally a vessel and things like that. But it's, it's clearly talking about the nations. It's clearly talking about the nations. In Romans chapter number two, Paul already established who gets wrath and who gets life. Verse number uh, six, he says, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life, to those who by patient continuing in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. So he already determines that individuals are determining who's gonna be a vessel of wrath and who's gonna be a vessel to receive mercy. Here in the context of Romans, and I'm just gonna read a couple verses just to clearly show that it's, it's definitely talking about the nations. I'm going to make it absolutely clear. Here, we, we jump on up to verse 17. And um, I'm sorry, I missed the wrong chapter here. Sorry. Here we go. Right? So there were two nations in Rebecca's womb. That's number one. Jacob and Esau, the older shall serve the younger. Esau never served Jacob. Only the nations served each other. That's number two. Then he goes on here to talk about in verse number 25, he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. Then Isaiah says, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Still talking about nations. Then he goes on to verse 30. What shall we then say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, this is the summation. Gentiles have attained it. Israel have not. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. Then chapter 10, my heart's desire is for Israel, that they might be saved. He's not talking about individuals. And I'll just read one more verse. And I know that's my time. Paul sums up the three chapters the three of these chapters in chapter number 11, I'll read this last verse, verse number 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, Gentiles, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to unrighteousness. God has committed them all to disobedience, rather, that he may have mercy on all. This isn't God saying, I like you, I'm saving you. For my sovereign purpose, I'm damning you. No, that's not what this verse is talking about. Amen. Amen, brother. So we are at uh, the very end. And, uh, you know, after this last segment, you know, we'll um, part ways, at least as it pertains to this particular filming. Um, I already want to thank y'all. But, uh, you know, so, so Matt, if you, uh, in his last words, you know, if you, if you wanted to push back a little bit, you have an opportunity because right now you, you have an opportunity to cross-examine uh, Mike Holloway, you know, and ask him questions or, you know. Uh, now we're, now we're being casual. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me ask Matt. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, hey, um, Veda. How long do in our responses you know i'm just giving an example like he can ask me one question i can take 20 minutes to respond so do we have a time on our responses so we can keep it flowing uh the i'll try to be at two to two and a half minutes like i have been the whole time 
Okay. I would. I my my goal. The the vision would be that it's just conversational, but gotcha. you know, talking to two teachers who know what they're talking about. You know, mm-hmm. the soliloquies could end up being a whole lot longer. So, I'll interject if it's too long. But I would love for it to be. You know, uh, it'll be fine. Something. It'll be friendly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it'll be conversational. But Matt, uh, you get to go first since Mike Holloway had the last word on the last uh, second. So we're not going to just have a conversation. We're just going to do what? I ask a question. Ask each other questions, right? Yeah. Or if it, <clears throat> okay. it'll be conversational. It's up, if y'all it's up to you guys. Mm-hmm. It's up to you guys. I, I want to hear. I want to hear. What do y'all think would be the most conversational approach? Because that's what I want to. That, that's what I want to share with people. Well, if you were uh, keep quiet and I said everything, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you give in to me, I'll sing you my hat. <laughs> <laughs> All right now. <laughs> I do like that hat. I do like that hat. Uh, you know, I do have some questions, so we can sure. probably get some of that, you know. Ask me a question. Let's just kind of dialogue a little bit. It's all good. Go yes, ahead. sir. <clears throat> you, want, you want to go first or want me to go ahead? Uh, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're young, so you're younger than I am, I should say. I don't know how old you are. <laughs> but I'm getting up there. I'll be 50 this year. What? <laughs> yes, sir. Right you do age. not even look it. Man, I thought you'd look like 13, you know what? maybe 14. Well, give me your address, man. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, you do not look it. Wow. Yes, sir. Married 25 years. Oh, three well, sons. I mean, good. That's good for you. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, um, so let's get into the questions. Uh, so here issues I have with Calvinism in terms of uh, you believe, as Calvin states, that God decreed and determined that Adam, as well as his posterity, would fall into sin. Am I right about that? Yeah. Okay. So God purposed that Adam would fall into sin. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, that's, would you agree that that's a logical, when I say logical, it doesn't mean that I think it's logical, <laughs> but when I'm saying that, do you agree that that's, that's a deduction out of the Calvinistic construct and that the scripture really doesn't say that? Uh, the scripture does. He works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, the fall, uh, my son's death, the, my, uh, you know, moving here, you're getting that hat. All things work after the counsel of God's will. <laughs> The word decree is often misunderstood by people, um, and I want to be able to go, get into this, and I'm trying to talk too fast, but there are different kinds of decree that we talk about in Reformed theology. If you don't understand the differences, then you'll, you'll run against problems. And we have uh, the decrees of God that are also concomitant with the issue of responsibility. This is not a two-minute conversation. Gotcha. To lay each thing out and show that there's different kinds of decrees. And then what we have of causation, we have what's called ultimate cause, proximate cause, and uh, efficient cause. And I can explain that. <clears throat> but this is what the scripture says. This is Acts 4, 27, 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your purpose your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, and the the Jews conspired all together to do what was wrong, to sin, to destroy Jesus. 
and it was to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The, pre, the, the crucifixion of Christ was predestined to occur from the foundation of the world, which is why it says the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was decreed by God. Now, let me explain. A direct decree is God says, let there be light. Boom, there's light. He's directly responsible. The proximate uh, or indirect decree is the universe is there. You have the free, we believe in free will, incidentally, and you have the free will to be able to rebel against God. He's not causing you to rebel against him. You're free to rebel, and you do. I mean, not you, but, you know, people, they, they, they rebel. So God's not the one responsible for your rebellion, but he is responsible for all the circumstances being there because you couldn't be there to make a choice without him. So he's the ultimate cause, but not the efficient cause. He doesn't put your hand on the gun, make you pull the trigger and say, now you're in trouble. That's not what we teach as Calvinism. And people say that's determinism. No, we don't teach that. They often very, very frequently misrepresent it. But the Bible does say that God predestined these things to occur. Who, what is to occur? The crucifixion. The crucifixion necessarily requires hammering by individuals with a hammer through the wrist, through okay. the feet pushing him, pulling him, doing this. Individuals were predestined, the Pontius Pilate Jews. So your question is answered by Scripture. Yes, God predestined it to occur. He did predestine bad things to occur because that's what the Scripture says. Well, let me, let me, let me push back um, because we're talking about Adam. You, you went to Christ. Oh, I'm <laughs> so, sorry. I, I did but no, that's fine. Me. No, that's fine. I, I appreciate you going there because I wanted to hit on that anyway. But, I, but sure. what I am saying is that, because my question was, Scripture doesn't say that necessarily concerning Adam. You quoted Ephesians. Works all thing. That word energio is not, has, that's, that's not predetermined. That's not predestined. That's not decreed. That's, it's not the word. So I, I would agree with you that God is working. He's sovereign. He's working all things toward his purpose. Even my bad decisions, he's working towards his purpose. He isn't determining that I do the bad things. I do that. I do that. But but God is so sovereign that even in my bad decisions, he's able to work them according to his purpose in the same way he did with Pontius Pilate and those men. Because if you go back to Acts chapter number uh, four, where you quoted, uh, before he says that, Peter quotes from the Psalms, who by the mouth of David, he said, verse 25, or why do the heathen rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Peter was referring to the text that is being fulfilled. But what I think Calvinists go too far. They say, oh, see all the things that they did. No, Peter quoted the text and now he's saying that this text is fulfilled. He isn't saying that he predetermined Judas to be Judas. He predetermined Pilate to do all the sins that he did. God is holy. He's separate from sin. He does not, uh, he does not, decree men to do simple acts. However, God working together, his predetermined will working together with his foreknowledge, he did determine Christ will be crucified in a willful act. But to say that God is the one that determined the fall, he decreed the fall, uh, it is it, to say that it's almost like if I throw you in the water and then jump in and save you, you know, I, I throw you in the water, jump in and save you. Now, thank me. No, I don't believe God did that. I don't believe God did. God did not purpose the fall. No, he understood the fall. He knew the fall was going to take place and through. And I like how Acts chapter two says it, according to his foreknowledge and predetermined purpose, they work together, knowing all things, working all things according to his purpose. Does not mean, and neither in this text or any text you quoted, does it mean that all those things were decreed by God to take place as though I'm wicked because that's just what my plan in life was because God wanted me to be that way. Go ahead. I'll let you respond. Yeah, you quoted Acts 2, uh, 2.23, but you didn't quote all of it. Okay. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan 
and for knowledge of God. Yes. You nailed to a cross. So he uh, lays the blame at the feet of the ones who were predestined. Because Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were there to do whatever God's hand and purpose predestined to occur. That's what the text says. It says that, Acts 4, 27, 28. These, the Gentiles, the, the individual Herod, the individual Pontius Pilate, the group, Gentiles, the group of people of Israel, to do what your hand and your purpose predestined to occur, yet in Acts 2, 30, 23, yet they're the ones held responsible because it was still by God's predetermined plan and they nailed him to the cross, and they're held responsible. And <clears throat> you need to study the issue of decree inside of Reformed theology. There are things that need to be studied, and if you get to seminary, it's going to be absolutely essential to, to study the decrees of God, what we mean by decree, and the will of God, because we have what's called the decretive will, the prescriptive will, and the permissive yeah. will. don't know if you're familiar with those. Absolutely. Um, and so we would say that with those, with the issue of God's decretive will, he causes and brings certain things to, to bear, and he predetermines that they would be the ones who would nail to the cross. And yes, in Ephesians 1.11, Ergeo, yeah, it, it talks about you know, God working it. God's the one who's doing the action of working it. It's in the active voice. God is the one who works it. Not passive, not middle. I believe that's the case. And he works it because he's the one bringing this about. He does it according to his divine will. And that's what it says, after the counsel of his will. It has to be by the will of God to permit somebody to lie, to permit them to steal. It's the will of God to permit them. He can stop them. He can stop anybody. He moves the heart of the king where he wishes it to go, Proverbs 21.1. God wills to allow somebody to steal. God doesn't sit up there in heaven and go, don't, 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 oh, man, look what he did. I didn't know it was going to. It doesn't happen like that. God knows all things, 1 John 3.20. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> when someone, you scratch your head, that's by the predetermined will of God. You freely <laughs> did it. We would say you freely chose to do what God ordained that you would do. And I can prove that's the case from Scripture using Jesus. So oh, I can, but this is what we would say. And we don't have enough time here to get into it. We need to have just right. a friendly discussion. No, that's not what we mean by that. Let's what we mean by this. We put it together. Take about right. an hour. Yeah. You know. and I don't claim you no Calvin. I, I know Calvin. I, I don't claim no Calvinism in and out, but, but I've been at this a little bit, a little bit. And I have studied the decrees, been studying Calvinism for a good 25 years. Um, well, you're so, not getting it exactly. Well, yeah. Most right. Calvinists, you're, you're, most Calvinists say that. Right? But, but I don't think most Calvinists. Seven years. I have a master's divinity from a Calvinist seminary. Listen, but, I get know. what you're saying, right? But uh, I, I, I hear Calvinists say that about men who, who make both of us look like uh, kindergartners in terms of their resume. You know, I hear Calvinists say that because it's almost like if you don't necessarily agree with it, you must not quite understand it. Well, I've, I've been in this a little while. Now, I'm not saying I understand every aspect. I'm a student. I'm learning every day. And you certainly probably know more about Calvinism than I do. So please don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. But here's what I am saying. <laughs> the text is clear about what it says. And it, it, it did not say that God predetermined Pilate to do what he did. It does not. It says that what God predetermined to occur, they did. You understand? That's a big difference. So God predetermined the cross to occur and they carried it out. What, what was involved, according to the text, both his predetermined counsel as well as his foreknowledge. God does not, and, and again, I think, and of course the decorative will, the prescriptive will, and all of those, certainly that Calvinists employ to me are philosophical ways to explain the doctrine, but not necessarily what the text says. So 
Um, but I do want to get into, um, you can respond to that, but I do want us to get into, before our time runs out, free will. In, in, well, in what, yeah. Because that's important. But you got to understand about the crucifixion. To, to, yes. do, to predetermine that the crucifixion happens means that pre, he predetermined it, that God determined this would happen. Amen. And he determines it by the work of people. He brought them to bear because it says he predestined it to occur, to do. They were to do what he predestined to occur. Yeah. They it did is, it. That's what they did actually, it, for sure. They, they did. They predestined. So God predestines individuals. You can't Show me say, that part in the verse. What, because it says Herod and Pontius Pilate. Does it do. say God predestined Herod and Pilate, or does it say they did what God predestined to, to occur? You see that difference? To, yeah, but it says to do. They are to do what your what your purpose predestined to, to occur. Exactly. But, but think about it. Are you saying that Pontius Pilate and Herod didn't were not determined by God to to be what they where they were? Like he raised up Pharaoh. I'm not saying that at all. But but again, words are important, and how we define yeah. words are important. So. So what God predestined to occur was the death of his son for our salvation, right? God used, God used Pilate, Herod, certainly, I would agree with you, used these men in the same way he did Pharaoh, in the same way he did Cyrus, in the same way he did Nebuchadnezzar. I agree with you that God used these evil, wicked men by their own volition and choice, not because they were predetermined to be that way. No, that's not what the text said. It doesn't say God predestined Herod to be as wicked as he was and he was going to do. No, they did what God predestined to occur. There's a huge difference there in the language. Yeah. But does he predetermine events without predetermining people? How does he predetermine an event without predetermining people when the event requires he's, individuals? Because he's all-knowing. Does he know what's going to happen in the future by their free will? He, yeah, Absolutely. And so he bases his predestination and predetermination based on what he sees they're going to do. No, I didn't say that. I said, but I'm asking, is that the case? No, God determines what he wants done. He knows all things. He knows if Michael is going to be wicked, right? Michael's going to steal this car. I'm going to use this knucklehead who's going to break my commandment. Now, I'm not going to determine that this man breaks my commandment, then send him to hell for doing what I determined that he do and say it's his fault when he could do nothing different than what I determined him to do. That's not what the text is saying. But God will use foreknowledge and his predetermined counsel work together. So you're saying that God works his counsel based on what he foreknows in the God, sense that he's gonna look, he knows the future. God knows all things, not learns, not looks, knows all things okay. from all times through all So you're all a Molinist. Age. I'm not Molinist, nowhere near Molinist. That's Molinism. <laughs> no, it's not. But yes, it is. No, Molinism is the counterfactuals that God knows all possibilities actual as well as potential that's not what, what I will say. actually occur and then he determines based on what the combination of all those events are that's what Molinism is I've yeah. written many articles on Molinism yeah I know exactly what Molinism is that's not what I am I'm not saying see in Molinism they'll say that God God can predetermine me to do something because he knew what I was going to do beforehand I, that's not what I'm saying I'm saying God uses the acts that he knows that I'm going to do not just that he knows all the possibilities that's I'm Molinism I'm That's not Molinism. No, it's not. <laughs> no, yes, it's it not he uses the, the what you're going to freely choose to do. He knows that you're freely going to choose to do, and that's incorporated in his plan to bring about his sovereign will. That's exactly what Molinism. No, teaches. no. I, here's here's the okay. one caveat. Go to that, org slash Molinism. <laughs> That's your site, isn't it? That's your site. Yes, it okay. is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Molinism. Right. That's right. I'm a check. No, no. Yeah, but, yeah. No, but listen, I, I I would agree 
from the standpoint of where you're asking it that there could be some similarities. But no, Molinism would even have a person going to hell who didn't have a chance to repent because God knew that had he had the chance, he wouldn't have. I'm not Molinist. That's not because exactly. he knows Molinism. all possibilities. Now, Molinism deals with what's called counterfactuals and middle knowledge. I know. And by Joseph Molina, uh, or uh, the priest Molina did this in order to try and rectify. Well, we're getting off topic. Let's right. we're, we're off topic. But, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so, so God, but here's the thing, right? Whatever we label ourselves, right? God works all things according to his foreknowledge and his divine counsel. He, he does all things according to his plan. But, but, but if you're done with that, you can respond to that. We can get on free will. What we have to do with the issue of how he predetermined something to occur without predetermined the people. But that's an interesting philosophical question. Let's talk free will. I love free will. Okay.